Welcome to Behind Hello, the Warrior. Hello, everyone. This is Maria Shabla, and welcome to the Behind EOD the Warrior, Warrior Foundation. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Christopher Ostrander. Dr. Ostrander is a national board-certified counselor. He is licensed in North Carolina, Florida, and the U.S. Virgin Islands, and has been counseling for nearly 10 years. He currently serves as a core faculty member of a CA. CREP accredited clinical mental health counseling program and also owns and operates a private practice along with his wife, Dr. Melissa Ostrander. In 2019, they moved from eastern North Carolina to the greater Tampa Bay area and moved their practice entirely online. His theoretical orientation is grounded in family systems and more specifically attachment theory. Dr. Ostrander has specialized training in cognitive behavior therapy, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, brief solution-focused therapy, family systems and group therapy, and has extensive training and education in the integration of faith and spirituality and philosophical thought within the field of counseling. Welcome to the podcast, Chris. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Maria. (laughs) You're so welcome. So we're looking forward to learning about how the soft network is connecting military families with counselors and therapists that truly understand the challenges that soft families face. But first, tell us about yourself, Chris. Where did you grow up and what was your family dynamic? Yeah, um, I grew up in uh, Wyoming, uh, Laramie specifically. it was an interesting dynamic. Both my parents were from uh, the Detroit metro area, and, and my dad played college football uh, for the university, so that's what um, brought him out there. But um, it's uh, not a lot of people are from Wyoming, and uh, it's definitely, uh, uh, I, I think, looking back, an amazing place to uh, you know have my youth years out there and all the different experiences. Um, my family was, you know, pretty average, I would say, um, as far as uh, you know, our, our surrounding kind of culture. Um, I'm the youngest of, of three boys. My dad, obviously, having played college football, sports were uh, kind of the uh, the main focus throughout uh, a, a good bit of our childhood. So me and my brothers, it was constant competition all the time. Uh, you know, 24-7, 365, it was uh, all, all about competition. Oh, wow. Um. Yeah, so a little bit more uh, in that um, process of, you know, growing up, being the youngest, um, there was just also that that culture of uh, performance, um, you know, t- tied to athletics, obviously. I think uh, a lot of individuals, um, you know, so actually a good question that I generally ask all my clients is, well, what's the cultural currency that you, you had growing up? Was it, you know performance in school was it uh you know appeasement of a certain uh, member of the family and so um yeah i think looking back at my own story over the years has helped me become a better counselor but uh looking back i definitely see um that that ability to perform and um uh at a high level in athletics was was always something that me and my brothers were uh, i think striving to achieve that is so interesting um and I had two sisters, so we definitely weren't weren't uh, worried about our performance and competing at all. So, um, but I do hear that boys tend to be very competitive with each other. So yeah, yeah. Uh, sorry, on that note, I'd love to know, uh, you know, what was that culture cr- cultural currency for you and your sister? 
I mean, I, I don't know. That's just such a good question. I've actually never even thought about it. Um, but we were a military family, and we, we traveled a lot. So, um, And then there's, you know, age differences, too. So my older sister was a good good bit older than us, and she kind of did her own thing. So um, I don't know. I don't know. That's a really interesting topic. I'll have to think about it. All right, get back to me on that. <laughs> yeah, I'll get back to you. So, um, Chris, both of your grandfathers were in the military and served in World War II. And you have some interesting stories they shared with you. Can you tell us specifically about their service and, and sub-chasers and the splinter fleet working in the Pacific? Yeah, so uh, my maternal um, grandfather, my mother's dad, um, he, I believe, uh, I'm not exactly sure, but I believe um, he was uh, a driver at some time in Europe an officer um and actually he uh brought some interesting items back which uh, we still have today we think at my parents house they still have a, a german dagger and a, an officer sword which um is pretty cool and i think wow. growing up um was always just super interesting you know being boys and yeah. weapons in the house and <laughs> being from world war ii that was just that was something that was super cool to see and show her friends but wow yeah my my dad's dad um actually joined the Navy at 17 um, and uh, ended up in this remote part of the Navy um, called the Splinter Fleet. Mm -hmm. um, they were 110-foot wooden boats. They were the smallest commissioned vessel in all of the Navy. And um, they actually uh, were kind of the uh, redheaded stepchild of the Navy to a certain extent. They had uh, small crews and uh, a lot of different uh, uh, mobilities because they were wooden ships and their draft was so so small, uh, meaning they didn't uh, the boat didn't sink down in the water very much. A big portion of that fleet ended up going into the South Pacific, and that's where my grandfather served. Uh, I think for about a year and a half. I'm actually in the process of getting his ship logs. Um, I just got his. DD214 uh, copy in the pay, uh, in the mail from my uncle the other day. We're in the process of uh, submitting paperwork to get his ship log so we can actually know for certain exactly when he got in the ship and, and when he got off. But um, yeah, when he was over there, um, I think for at least a, a good year and a half, he always he had some interesting stories. But one of them in particular, I'll share with you. Um, he told us they were consistently. Uh, uh, moving in close to islands and doing patrols. Um, and at one time they rounded a bend or a bay. I'm not really sure. Um, and they were, uh, immediately met with, uh, either a Japanese destroyer battleship, a much larger ship than, mm -hmm. than their 110 foot wooden vessel. And so, um, he was telling us as kids that the large, I think eight or 10 inch guns on the Japanese deck couldn't, they're actually, hitting the stop they couldn't come down uh, low enough to engage the little ship and so they were taking small arms fire but um, unbeknownst to the Japanese ship as, as they kind of peeled out of there as fast as possible um, there was an American uh, larger ship behind them that started to engage them but uh, yeah it was pretty cool as a, as a young kid hearing um, both my grandfather's stories and I think it was something that at a young age just really uh, I don't know pulled me into uh, an interest in the military. That is so wild, and I, I just love that story. I think um, probably very few people have ever, ever even heard of a splinter fleet. I, I know I hadn't. Um, so, and that's so neat that you're that you're doing research and, and getting those logs um, from his service. 
So Chris, growing up, you mentioned that you weren't in the military yourself. However, you found yourself surrounded by vets. Can you tell us about that and how that may have contributed to your passion in helping veterans? Yeah, so um, at a young age, um, you know, where I grew up was a small college town. Um, just to give people an idea, uh, obviously Wyoming uh, is not a super populated uh, place, but Laramie is maybe, I don't know, the fourth or fifth biggest city. So there might be, uh, when the university is in, there might be 35, 40,000 people there. Um, pretty small town, but my dad owned a construction company, built custom homes um, while I was growing up. And yeah, uh, I can remember um, there was uh, an officer, a Navy officer that was actually uh, one of my uh, youth group leaders as a kid that went to the academy and um, uh, just had a large impression on me. And then um, there was a Marine scout sniper for a time that worked for my dad. There was a former Navy SEAL that worked for my dad. As a kid, um, uh, along with my, my grandfather's um, and my dad's cousin's services um, in the military, uh, both World War II and then my dad's cousin in Vietnam, um, military was always uh, really respected in my family and something uh, admired people that, that served. We uh, were real good friends of my dad's that served, my best friend's dad served in the Air Force for several years. So um, looking back, now uh, that I work with uh, military members, I can see just that constant thread. Um, and even in more of my, my adult life, uh, one of my good college friends um, uh, left college uh, for the invasion of Iraq. And then another friend happened to be going through Ranger, um, uh, the Ranger program, um, the Ranger pipeline uh, when we were living together at the tail end of college. So yeah, looking back, it was always a part of uh, kind of the people that I associated with. But um, when I got into counseling, it was never, never a focus. Interesting. And are there any bases near where you grew up? Yeah, so actually, um, Wyoming, uh, eastern Wyoming is an interesting place if you ever get a chance to go through there. But uh, F.E. Warren Air Force Base is a I'd say huge for Wyoming standards, but uh, not, not compared to the rest of the United States. It's a big Air Force base, and each year um, around uh, Frontier Days, that's the big rodeo in Cheyenne, um, the Thunderbirds would come into town, and we'd get an opportunity to go out uh, on the tarmac and, and see the tanks and whatnot. But um, growing up, I hunted a lot. Uh, my family, avid hunter. In fact, my brother owns a, a guiding service, uh, fly fishing guiding that's kind of how diehard hunters we were he took up <laughs> as a profession but wow. yeah growing up and hunting in eastern wyoming um there's missile silos all over um and uh, as a kid one of our uh field trips was laramie's about 45 minutes from cheyenne as we went over to effie warren air force base and um i think one of the big things that they're known for is the icbm missiles and so, yeah, there's missiles scattered all over um, Nebraska, western Nebraska, eastern Wyoming, missile silos. And so we learned all about that. And so that was another introduction just to uh, the military, the military culture. And so it was just it was always kind of hanging around. Yeah, it sounds it sounds like it was. So can you tell us what led you into, as you call it, the pink collar career field of mental health counseling? Yeah, so uh, interesting. Um being the youngest of three, uh, a lot of competition growing up. Um, yeah, uh, 
there was there was uh, underlying issues. Uh, I think no different than a lot of uh, kids growing up. Um, you know, we had our family issues, um, and so it always. Uh, I really liked mechanical work growing up, and, and just understanding how things worked, and the fact that some of the relationships. Uh, in my life weren't exactly the way I felt like they should be, but I couldn't really understand them. Um, I, in my own journey uh, through kind of making a mess of, of my young adult life, I, I found myself in counseling and in that process uh, taking a lot of abstract things that didn't make a lot of sense to me um, and started really um, making concrete sense of them. Um, you know, just a uh, reference that culture again that I kind of grew up with my dad was very much um you know I would say the the Vince Lombardi dad to a certain extent is winning isn't everything it's it's the only thing for those of you that know who Vince Lombardi is and um you know rub some dirt on it and Mm -hmm. so it was uh you know just a a culture that um caused some division I think at times and as a kid I never really understood that so I think once I kind of made a, a enough mistakes in life and started asking for help, I, I found counseling. It made a lot of sense. And then in the process of going back to school and in my mid twenties, um, psychology and specifically counseling was just, um, the, the natural fit. I really understood relational dynamics. Um, being the younger three, it was, it was constantly that again, that competition hierarchy and, and figuring out well who's in control in this situation whether it was me and my brothers wrestling or people arguing um being on athletic teams constantly and recognizing oh and in, in this particular team this person just seems to drag down the team they, they may be really really good but something about the way they communicate or, or their behavior their personality and I think as a kid, I didn't recognize it, but I was hyper aware of those things. Mm-hmm. And so by the time that um, I got interested in psychology and counseling, there was kind of that path that was already laid down or that foundation that was all uh, already laid down. And so, yeah, um, I met my wife in college uh, in Tennessee, um, and it, then it was a natural um, progression from undergrad and going to grad school and yeah, ended up uh, in a pink collar profession. <laughs> yeah, and I had never heard that term before. Yeah, so uh, a lot of people here in nursing, you know, mm-hmm. male nurses. And uh, the interesting thing, I was thinking about it actually um, the other day that for maybe a lot of military members, you know, um, at least anecdotally my experience, and I, I could be wrong about this, but most of the psychologists um, probably were male. And so... Um, maybe even from a military standpoint, um, that's, that's almost backwards, but yeah, in the private sector, counseling, social work, um, is mostly a pink collar profession. So being a male, um, is definitely has its advantages and disadvantages for sure. That is so interesting. Um, so tell us what types of counseling do you specialize in and how did you start working with the military special ops community? Yeah, so um, right out of uh, or with, during my master's, um, I interned at a trauma um, certified center in New Orleans, and this was post Katrina, uh, four or five years, and, and that center was actually set up because of uh, all the trauma during Hurricane Katrina, and so um, it ended up kind of being a, a real um, staple in the community where. 
just a ton of young clinicians went as well as seasoned clinician. And it was a, a great opportunity to learn. And so that was my first introduction, actually my very first client, um, uh, happened to be a victim of, of sexual assault. And so, um, I didn't really go looking for it. I think, uh, actually one of my professors was moving on and handed that client off to me and, uh, it ended up being just, again, a natural fit. And in the process, my wife, um, who's also a professor and we have a private practice together. The other dynamic that we were really focused on uh, collectively uh, was couples counseling and um, a unique version of couples counseling because we were both uh, counselors. We started doing uh, co-therapy uh, as far as her and I both in session with a couple, um, which was a lot of fun. And I think once the kiddos uh, are all grown and, and uh, or at least at school full time. It's something we'll, we'll fall back to because it's a uh, super unique type of therapy and offers a lot of uh, different insights than just one therapist. So, yeah, in that process, I knew uh, trauma was something I was really interested in coming out of grad school and couples work. And um, we moved to Wilmington, North Carolina. And for those of you that don't know, uh, on a map, Wilmington's in the southeast corner right on the coast and you're kind of sandwiched uh, triangularly between Lejeune, uh, which is a big marine base on the east coast, and then Fort Bragg, um, which I believe is the biggest army base on the east coast and uh, the home of the special operations community. So um, you can imagine being a male in a pink collar profession. Um, uh, yeah, the private practice that we worked at, um, there was just a, a chance encounter with an operator one day that chose me as far as uh, the list of providers. And um, I think, uh, you know, that, that mindset uh, of that culture growing up um, and playing college athletics myself, there was just very much uh, a kin uh, spirit of um, respecting the operator and, you know, when it's time to work hard and when it's time to do things that I, that, um, that mechanism of compartmentalization and being able to detach from certain things to do a job, I really respected, um, I think because of my sports background and also that military culture that um, I grew up kind of near, like we talked about. Um, and so that married with also my uh, education and understanding, oh, there's all these emotional things that are really, really important. And so um, both myself having that, that marriage, if you will, of understanding Hey, when is it time to really work hard and use maybe that skill of compartmentalization? And then when is it time to be vulnerable? And when is it time to unzip? Because it aids my wife, it aids my kids, and it actually makes me a better husband. It makes me a better father. And so um, after really that first uh, operator client, um, it ended up being something that I was drawn to more and more. And uh, it wasn't something that I went out and advertised by any stretch um, because I didn't really know anything about the community other than I knew it existed. And so over the course of the next several years, I just at different times had different operators and, and or their spouses or them as a couple come in. Um, and then uh, fast forward to about 2019, me and my wife and our family moved down to uh, Tampa Bay area. Um, and also, uh, uh, home of SOCOM. So a lot of special operations individuals here. And, um, it almost, you know, again, without advertisement, one of the first persons that ever reached out to me down here, 
um, happened to be really piped into the community and it, it was just a continuation. So um, by about 2019, the bulk of my clientele that I was working with was in that special operations community. And so it just kind of happened um, naturally. Mm-hmm. And word got out. <laughs> so, so tell us, what is the soft network? Why did you start it and why is it so important? Yeah, um, uh, so important. Um, in the process of, uh, to backtrack, you know, uh, what I just shared, I found myself just scratching for resources um, uh, about this community. And, you know, I buried myself in podcasts and uh, asked a million questions to some of those early operators about the special operations community because I was just, I was learning. Um, I was very thankful my uh, brother-in-law that was stationed at Lejeune, um, my wife has two brothers that are in the Marine Corps and um, he was a wealth of information. He's actually a, a, an E9 now in the Marine Corps and he's not in the special operations community, but um, um, would help me understand things like MOS and, you know, some of the vernacular. So um, in that process of kind of educating myself in any way I could, whether it be books, whether it be podcasts, whether it be videos or talking to my brother-in-law to, to understand some of the intricacies of the community. Um, I, I started to wonder where are there, there's gotta be other counselors, there's gotta be other psychologists, other social workers that are in the private sector that, that work with these individuals. And, you know, I, I do my best to do some research and figure out who does. And um, it was a, it was a time consuming task and never really came across anybody that, that strictly advertised. And, you know, it made sense why they wouldn't advertise um, to a certain extent. And so, again, fast forward um, to back down here in Tampa uh, over the last couple of years. And over the course of my, my career, I had many individuals and couples that were retiring, that were PCSing. And, and you know, as you know, it's a very transient community. And so um, it was really difficult to have them move on um, and ask well, hey, who do you know in Texas? Who do you know in Nebraska? Who do you know in Ohio? Who do you know on the West Coast that's, that you trust uh, from a therapeutic standpoint? And I, I really couldn't give them a solid answer. And it, it just ate at me and ate at me and ate at me. And so last year, um, around this time, I just really felt burdened. Um, I, I need to reach out and, and create this network. I got to find these other clinicians and, and because um, former clients would reach out years later and say, Hey, I'm still looking for anybody. Do you know anybody here? Or, hey, I've moved to this state. Do you know anybody here? And again, I just, um, a huge piece. I'm a counselor educator now um, as well as my private practice, but a huge piece that I teach my, my students all the time is about advocacy um, counselor education is about counselor education and supervision, but a huge piece of that is that advocacy piece. And that, as a clinician, many times you have to advocate for your client. And so I found myself in this space where I felt just this burden to advocate. And so I came up with this idea of, well, what if there was some way to collect all the individuals that work within um, this community uh, in the private sector? And, and what if we came under one umbrella, one directory, if you will, so that anyone in this community, active duty, retired, has a one source where they can go and they can find trusted, vetted clinicians that really understand 
special operations community and are really top-notch clinicians. And so that was the genesis of it. Wow. So, and you just launched the soft network in April of this year, and it has grown exponentially in a very short period of time. What do you contribute this to, and what are your aspirations? Yeah, uh, honestly, um, so many people helped me, and uh, the, the the network would not be here um, if it wasn't for so many key people. And um, you had uh, Dr. Chris Free on uh, the lead author on operator syndrome a, a few months back, and he was actually one of the the lone people that I knew uh, on the private side that. Um, occasionally worked in this community, and I really didn't know much about him. Um, I had stumbled upon him on, on a very obscure podcast uh, <laughs> early, uh, maybe even January 2020, right when that paper came out. And so it was super interesting timing. I reached out and introduced myself, and, and uh, he kind of shared a couple resources, which I was amazed that he even a- answered my email, and he shared the <laughs> operator syndrome paper at the time. And somebody kind of new to the community um, and, and somewhat an outside, I was like, wow, this is amazing. This is, this, this describes so much. And I think so many people, once they saw that paper, they just had this aha moment on uh, a lot of clinicians. Um, I would say that I, I've had the opportunity to share with um, similarly just was like, yes, yes, this describes what we're seeing. And so when I came up with this proposal for the soft network and, I built the website and kind of got everything to this point where I was ready to launch it. Um, I really only knew a handful of people and um, Chris was one of them. And so I, I kind of sent him this proposal uh, along with some other people. And, and he immediately linked me um, with the seal future foundation. And um, I met Joey over at the seal future foundation. He's a former seal that's uh, uh, the director of health over there. And, he gave me a quick call and said, yes, the, uh, we were going to do just this. And so he's like, you already kind of got it built. And um, so let's go, you know. Awesome. And so we launched it in April. I think at the time we had three clinicians um, that were on it. And in the last, well, I don't know how many months we are away, I guess seven months, uh, eight months. Um, I think we have 27 clinicians on the site to date. Um, there's about 10 or 11 clinicians that are in the onboarding process that are being interviewed by myself, um, a member of the soft community. And then sometimes when we need a third interview, we pass it along to, uh, another, um, clinician. Um, and it's, it's been amazing. Um, so as I've met different uh, clinicians within, uh, that work with the special operations community, um, I really, my heart was really wanting to know and find former operators because I, I knew of, of a couple by name that were now licensed clinicians. And so, um, yeah, through word of mouth and, oh, you should reach out to this person and, oh, I'll link you with this person as I've met different organizations, whether it be Seal Future Foundation or individuals um, through Chris, um, I was able, I think at this point, we've got, and I could be wrong, but we're hovering around five or six former operators with about three or four more in the process that were in the special operations community and now are full-time or, or part-time licensed, fully licensed clinicians. And so it's awesome to have them there. We've got some spouses. Um, we've got some 
individuals that were at commands um, on the mental health side and and are now on the private side but have joined and so it's uh, it's just been amazing to watch this community I would say um, connect and and link for this cause and over the course of getting to meet all these amazing people just really the groundswell of them being excited about it sharing it with their friends sharing it with um, past teammates, uh, wives, um, other nonprofits sharing it with other nonprofits and then people reaching out and saying, Hey, how can we help? What can we do? Um, and, uh, it's really been uh, this group effort. And I think that's one of the things that, uh, as I get exposed to this community more and more is just, um, the work ethic as well as everybody just chips in. And, and, you know, if it's, if it's something good and something pure, I just see this community as a whole work so hard to accomplish so much. And so I really give credit to all those people um, that have helped along the way. Wow, that's amazing. And and you truly are, are you're filling a need. You know, we needed that network um, within these communities. And uh, I can I can tell our listeners that, you know, I've had several EOD families that um, Chris was able to help me um, connect with with counselors that understood what their family had gone through with, with deployments and with their children trying to understand, you know, how their parents were acting differently when they got home. So, um, I, I am a huge advocate of what you're doing, Chris. I, I love it. And, um, one thing I wanted to see if you could tell our listeners about is a curriculum that you're developing now and the importance of cultural competencies. Yeah, so cultural competencies is uh, is kind of a a buzzword, at least in um, some of the nonprofits and um, and ultimately what we're really trying to do is create a standard of care, so that you know there's all these different clinicians that have different modalities and different approaches under this umbrella that is Soft Network. That's that's this directory for mental health. Um, and so with that, we want to, we want to, you know, a, a solid standard of care. And so that cultural competency piece is really important to me. It's really important to, I think, every clinician that's on. Um, and I think, um, for people like you, Marina, that are at these great nonprofits, it's really important for you guys as well as you pass off maybe individuals or members of your communities to maybe some of these clinicians. And so, We're trying to, we're working on developing something that is really foundational to um, how we approach the clients. Now, uh, it isn't, uh, hey, we're always going to approach from this method from a therapeutic standpoint because we're, you know, letting the clinicians uh, be the experts that they are in their different uh, expertise. And there's different therapeutic approaches on a lot of different areas. And so that's not necessarily what we're touching. Yes, it's got to be evidence-based, and, and that's a, a huge ethical standard um, that all clinicians um, have, and so that's kind of a, a goes without saying, but more so of, of the culture of understanding what is the soft community. What do these operators and these spouses and these kids go through? And making sure these clinicians really understand who the special operations community are uh, I think uh, as an umbrella, um, you know, just what's the difference between a SEAL? What's the difference between an EOD tech? What's the difference between a Green Beret? Uh, it makes a difference um, in, in how they're trained. And obviously, they're over the umbrella of special operations, but there's different cultures in there. And so that, that's an important piece as a clinician to know so that you can really connect with that uh, individual client or that couple 
But then also, and this is, um, we steal a bit of, of Chris's material uh, from that paper, is, hey, as a group, we're going to recognize that there is this, uh, at least what they're calling it right now, is operator syndrome. And it's, as to use, again, their words, this constellation of, of, of presenting problems that could be anything from existential issues, PTSD, um, endocrine system dysfunction, sexual dysfunction, um, uh, despair, grief, uh, you know the list. Um, and, it, and it goes on and on. On top of the, you know, you mentioned the culture of um, your family in the military. It's, it's unique. It's unique to have to move every couple of years. It's unique to have a family member deploy um, and, and what some of those rhythms and experiences are for the spouse and the kids. And so we want to make sure that all these clinicians and it's a document we're working on and we're going to disseminate down to the clinicians, get their feedback. Cause again, they're experts. Um, and as I mentioned, some of them have been at the command, some of them are former operators. And so as we really perfect that document, then we'll disseminate it down to all the clinicians and we'll probably post it uh, or at least a version of it. And so that um, those that come to use the soft network, they know, hey, here's the standard of care that you're going to get from any of these clinicians, depending on whether you're coming for couples work, whether you're coming for individual work, whether whatever it may be. Um, you and I beforehand were talking about moral injury, um, you know, just a, a standard of care that I think needs to be stated so that both organizations like EOD, um, Warrior Foundation, or any of our partners, Seal Future Foundation, Operation Healing Forces, they all know the standard that, that we're setting as well. And so they feel comfortable handing off their clients or their people to us. Yes, I, I think that that article is so interesting in the way that it, it blends physical health with mental health. And we've talked about the importance of holistic health. What does that mean to you? Yeah, so holistic health is really looking at the whole picture. Um, and uh, it's been a movement probably in the last 10 years, maybe even a little bit before, but as a whole within the mental health community, um, that idea of holistic health is, um, you know, looking at, at, the, at the whole human being. Um, it's not just a... a you meet this criteria, therefore you have this diagnosis and you move forward. Um, back when I was working, uh, just to give an example, back when I was working in, in Wilmington, North Carolina, uh, I worked alongside, um, we weren't in the same practice, but um, he was the psychiatrist I used. Um, and I, I used to always tell my clients, he's not the type of psychiatrist that you're probably used to. He was very focused on uh, health and fitness and very focused on uh, understanding exactly what was going on in the body. And he had some, some awesome tests that um, I'll give one quick example. I had a client come in and I think they were on Prozac. They've been on Prozac for 15, 20 years. And they're saying, Hey, this is just what my GP gave me. And, and this is what I'm on. And I was like, okay, well, um, you know, are, are you working with a psychiatrist right now? No, no, no. I was like, okay, do you, um, you know, process. Uh, okay. Well, let's, Let's check this out. And so uh, networking, you know, I'm the mental health clinician. I'm doing the therapy, but uh, I'm working and looking at this holistically and recognizing there may be other things that are beyond me that are actually attributing to this person's depression. 
And so as I sent that um, individual to that psychiatrist, he specifically ran his clients through some very specialized tests. And um, there's a there's a huge gut health connection to your mental health that some people may know about. And it's been recently documented more and more, I'd say, last in the last 10 years. But wouldn't you know it, that client went and got that assessment done. blood work, stool sample. There's a couple other things that that particular practice does. And that, that uh, psychiatrist was able to sit down with that, that client and say, your gut health is actually producing a unique enzyme to where it can't even take um, or, or uh, metabolize, metastasize. I get those two mixed up sometimes. Um, <laughs> metabolize. Yeah. The, the Prozac. And in fact, you need to be on, this other antidepressant and once you know in that process it was a matter of some supplements to change the person's gut health and then very very quickly once the person changed their antidepressant they got healthy um, from a mental standpoint i would say very very quickly and so that's that's one example but um as i tell my students all the time and i I just try and um, encourage them more and more in their assessment skill and specifically in the, in the you know we think biopsychosocial spiritual those are the four domains that we really assess in is in the bio sleep diet and exercise those things i can't tell you over the course of my career how many individuals those things aren't uh maybe regular and and, and healthy and whether it's presenting issues of anxiety depression uh, fill in the blank and many times when you get those dialed in correctly there's not therapy to be done. It's a matter wow. of, you know, maybe how they're eating. And I, this isn't, you know, this isn't new news. I think as a culture, um, we're really becoming more and more aware of this probably in the last, again, 10 years. Uh, and really in the last five to seven years where more and more individuals and doctors, GPs as well, are really looking at, hey, what are my patients eating? What are their, what's mm-hmm. their sleep like? What's their exercise level? Because these things are so intricately uh, intertwined in our mental health. And so, yeah, as a clinician, um, holistic health is, is of the utmost importance. And when you get into this community, so you know, let me transition and actually talk about this community. In that paper, Chris mentions uh, TBI. Um, the, those authors talk about um, endocrine dysfunction. They talk about existential issues. They do talk about moral injury, PTSD, um, uh, chronic joint pain, right? Mm. And so as a clinician in this community, if you're not a holistic, if you're not looking at it from a holistic approach, you're missing so much. You know, these operators have a tremendous amount of wear and tear on their body. Most of them, lots of chronic pain, whether it be tied to blast wave trauma that could be affecting their joints, their back, fill in the blank, um, uh, jumping, you know, uh, a lot of people think that jumping out of uh, moving planes and landing on your feet is, is an easy task. And, and sometimes with a lot of injuries, people follow helicopters. And again, so somebody is coming in, but they're battling joint pain, chronic pain in their back. As a clinician, if I'm not looking at the whole picture that is the whole person and kind of being, helping be that quarterback to help them, hey, have you checked out this resource? Hey, have you talked to this doctor? Okay. Do you have any resources? Do you have any doctors on post that address this, this, and this? If not, okay, how can we potentially look at nonprofits or 
um, private providers that do specialize in this. And so, yeah, that holistic approach is, is really essential, I think, for any baseline human being that walks into uh, any practice. But then when you get into this community, I think the stakes and the consequences, if it's missed, are higher. And so I think, you know, that that um, that piece uh, is so, so important. I can't under, uh, understate that. Yeah, and it's just so exciting um, to hear, you know, this be on the table. You know, I was in healthcare for a long time and um, and specifically in a GI clinic uh, for seven years. And I, I can't tell you the amount of times we would uh, do an assessment on a patient, um, you know, with the UC or Crohn's and um, it, onset of symptoms was after like a traumatic event, you know, and it just always seemed to me like we're, we're missing the boat because, you know, I feel like trauma often has effects on the body, significant effects. So I, I just find this very exciting um, from a personal uh, point of view. But um, I kind of want to switch gears a little bit. You had said something to me that I think that a lot of soft veterans would be able to relate to. And you said, respect what you've done, but realize the time to address trauma you have been collecting in your careers. We all know that's not as easy as it sounds. So what are some of the ways that counseling is able to help veterans accomplish that goal? Yeah, I think um, one of the first things out of the gate is just that, that education piece. You know, so much of what we do is in the abstract. You and I were talking about that um, before we jumped on. And um, when you can take something out of the abstract and give it a little bit of a form or structure, uh, a framework, uh, maybe even an analogy, um, people can understand um, and wrap their minds around it. And and again, I can never change anybody. This is something, again, I, I tell my students all, all the time, you're not in the business you're not an advice giver. If that's what you think you are, you're in the wrong profession. Go be a coach or, or something else. Um, people change themselves. And so as a clinician, you go to school, you learn all the techniques, you learn all the language. But a huge part of being a clinician is educating your client about what's going on internally. Um, and so there's, there's this uh, process of, um, at times, as a clinician, you're, you're, you're a psychoeducator, helping clinicians understand what's happening to them or has happened to them, maybe between a couple in their relationship or maybe between an individual um, that was medboarded before he or she wanted to get out. And there's this loss, there's this grief, mm-hmm. and, and they can't get over it and they don't understand um, this process of grieving. And so as clinicians, I think um, we have the opportunity to educate our clients um, and, and help give them the language and that understanding of exactly what's happening from an educated perspective. Um, uh, the other piece that, uh, again, I have the tremendous, the, the most tremendous respect for, for this um, particular population that I work with because they're experts at what they do. And I think that's the other thing that, that's so great whenever I work with these individuals and or their spouses is uh, I'm sitting across from another expert that really understands themselves. Um, and as a whole, I think um, the education from what I've seen anecdotally from some of my clients is on the mental health side in, in the government side or on the military side, rather, 
is really good. Um, the, the operators are learning more and more about their mental health and they're utilizing um, their mental health resources at the different commands more and more. And so I'm seeing there's uh, actually less and less uh, education, uh, psychoeducation I'm having to do with certain individuals, which I think is awesome. Um, again, they have the tools and, and they've been trained to be able to do missions, whatever that mission may, may be, land, sea, air, right? They have that capability. They, they've trained for years and they know how to approach it. They know how to plan it. They know that intricacies. And likewise, as a clinician, as, as we meet up, we have the capability, the training to walk through trauma, to uh, help somebody understand uh, the difference between anxiety, depression, to be able to help them differentiate, but then also help them uh, give them uh, the interventions, the mechanisms, the treatment plans um, to walk through it. And so, yeah, I think to use an analogy, I generally say you've got this 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 bicep that the military and you have built that is really, really strong and really, really competent and, and razor sharp. Um, but maybe your emotional intelligence, um, to use a 50 cent word, um, or your ability to connect with your family is extremely atrophied. Mm. And that's not a, a personal uh, attack on them. It's, I would argue, you know, as a whole, you know, were you trained uh, at the school that you went to on emotional intelligence? I know I wasn't. Mm -hmm. And so as a society, I think we're just catching up to this idea of, hey, our emotions tell us a lot, but sometimes they lie to us, right? Um, and, and I'll be the first clinician that, that, you know, will say, hey, there's some times where we need to ignore our emotions and we need to challenge that. Um, but then there's other times where our emotions are telling us something and we need to listen. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things in that educational process with operators and other spouses is, hey, I know you perfected being able to ignore your emotions and it's, it's helped you get to the level that you're at and, and do what you did to stay safe, to keep your friends safe, et cetera. But I also kind of want to help you understand, actually, that there's some good stuff about our emotions and, and they actually help us connect sometimes, not only with ourselves, with our spouse, with our children, even with our teammates. Um, you know, one of the things that I see that just, it rips at my heart is as individuals transition and get out, um, they've been in this ecosystem that is the greater military. You know, they start at 18, 17, 20, 21, 22, depending if they're an officer coming in. And it's this, this built-in ecosystem that, you know, the joke is, you know, 90% of, of your job in the military is figuring out where to show up, what time, and what uniform to wear. <laughs> um, and, you know, dental's provided, food's provided, everything's provided, and then you get into the special operations world and, and it, that circle gets tighter mm -hmm. and the individuals that you know are much more intimate because of some of the things that you train through, some of the things that you experience, some of the losses you go through. Um, but then boom, when they're done, they're done. And it's almost like that entire ecosystem, that entire identity piece is just gone. Mm -hmm. um, and that disconnect, you know, I mean, look what we experience as, as a society and as a world with COVID when we locked down human beings don't do well if they're not connected with other human beings. And all the research supports that. Mm -hmm. And so a huge piece that, that burdens me is just when they're out and that, that massive disconnect that happens is helping them 
you know, recognize, hey, that that emotion that you're experiencing, that you're really missing the guys, maybe it's time to pick up a phone call and figure out who's out that's got time or who's still in and, and has time for a cup of coffee or has time to, you know, sit around and, and do something meaningful together. Um, and I think that's where, as a clinician, um, I, I love sitting down, um, whether it be with a wife, with a couple, with, with an operator and um, getting to that point where, you know, it can help offload some of this information and see that light bulb where they recognize it. And then they start listening to their body. They start being able to differentiate what is a good emotion that it really need to pay attention to and what's something that maybe is something I just need to challenge. And all of a sudden the improvement starts happening. They start connecting with other individuals and, and almost the light comes back on. Wow. That is awesome. And I think you really hit the nail on the head with that, that transition piece too, and how important that is, um, to try to support the veterans as they're getting out, whether they're retiring or, you know, whatever amount of time that they served, it seems that that transition is really a, a hard point. Um, like you said, losing that connection. So, um, the other, you know, part of that too is just like, I think, I think that the military is making great strides and, and understanding the, like, the power of the mind. Um, so it's, it's exciting times. I think that we're in. Um, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I see more and more organizations, uh, like EOD warrior foundation. I meet a new organization. I feel like every week that has an awesome heart and is doing amazing work. And again, a huge part of, of being an advocate for my clients, um, is, is fueling and, and pointing them, hey, have you heard about this nonprofit? Have you heard about this nonprofit? Here's what they do really well. Here's what they do really well mm-hmm. um, in connecting them. So I think a huge part of uh, some of what we do as clinicians um, and what I want to do and what we want to do as, as a greater network is make these resources uh, individuals aware of them um, and so that they can utilize them because uh, they're there. And I think sometimes it's sorting through uh, maybe the litany of them and trying to figure out which one does which. I think as, as clinicians, as we build that relationship, we have, uh, I would say, an opportunity, but also an obligation to make sure clients get the best care they can, wherever that may be. Yes, yes, yes. Um, one thing I wanted to, to bring up, too, is we had talked before about the importance of therapeutic alliance um, in counseling. And I, I wondered if you could explain what that means and why it's important. Yeah. So one of the things that I, uh, really push with my young CITs counselors in training, um, is uh, the research in counseling specifically. So, uh, social work has been around for a little bit longer, a little bit more well known, psychologists similar, um, and then counselors, um, some of the research out of the counseling uh, specifically, you know, we kind of all have different approaches, but the counseling approach is a little bit unique in that um, it was really focused early on on connecting with the client. And the research has yielded that um, I think it's in the high 80s. I, I could be wrong. It's, it's definitely above 70. Um, I should know it off the top of my head, but I don't. That. Um, the client outcome is is directly tied towards that therapeutic alliance. Meaning, uh, if you're my client, Maria, how well do you trust me? How well do we actually connect and we communicate? And the research shows, uh, depending on how well we connect and how well we communicate as client and counselor, 
has direct implications to how fast and how well you get. And so um, maintaining that therapeutic alliance is, is a foundational piece as a clinician because, um, you know, if I'm going to challenge somebody, let's say somebody has a, a distorted cognition, a distorted belief about themselves or about um, something that happened in their military experience, that therapeutic alliance has to be strong enough to where when I challenge you, you don't shut down. Mm. You don't write me off. You don't cut the relational ties or the emotional ties. And so clinicians that are aware of that therapeutic alliance and balance that well, uh, they're going to have really good outcomes, that, you know, barring their therapeutic approach, theoretical orientation, all these other things are in place, but you know, the research really supports they're going to have, their clients are going to have really good outcomes. And in this community, you know, it's such, um, I was reading a blog the other day or an article. It was not special, different. This is such a different community. And um, rightfully so, uh, a lot is cloaked in um, secrecy and, and, and a high level of trust. And so as a clinician, I take it very, very seriously. And again, in the vetting process, this is part of the reason I have former operators, uh, both who are clinicians and just former operators that are just volunteering, do some of these interviews because I want to make sure as we partner with some of these different clinicians that are joining the soft network, that operators are saying, yeah, I could see myself and actually I connected with them very, very quickly. And they seem to really understand our world. Um, and so that, that therapeutic alliance is really important, both from a research standpoint but then when you get into actually challenging or potentially offering interventions, uh, it's essential. And really, you know, it goes back to, I would argue, a perfect example is this community. You've got to have a tremendous amount of trust with your teammate um, so that you can accomplish things uh, in country and come home safe. And I think it's no different when we sit down and we start working um, when it's client and clinician is that there has to be trust that's built so that when there's hard times, when there's really difficult things to walk through together, there's trust. And if there's not that trust, if there's not that security in the relationship, um, that's a barrier to treatment. Mm -hmm. And so I take that, I take that very seriously. And as a counselor educator, I, I can't, uh, teach my students enough how, how important that is. That is wonderful. And I just, I love that. I love that term. And um, it was new to me when you had told me about it and the importance of it. And so I, I think that's wonderful. Another shift, you know, maybe for some. Um, and so therapeutic alliance and holistic health, it's just like, I think it's the wave um, of the future. And I think it's going to help people heal and, and truly heal. Um, so to me, it feels like there's a paradigm shift happening in the world of mental health. And it's exciting, like I said before. So for anyone listening who wants to join or support the soft network, where could they go for that information? And what is your vetting process? Yeah, so uh, you can just go to softnetwork.org, S-O-F-N-E-T-W-O-R-K um, uh, um, .org. Um, and you, you can fill out a contact, uh, information and I'll get that email and somebody will reach out to you. Hopefully within 36 hours, uh, we try and do it within 24 hours. 
So the vetting process, um, you know, if it's a if it's a partnership, um, obviously there's, um, hey, do we have a like mindedness when it comes to another organization or do we fulfill something that the other organization doesn't fulfill? And so um, that's that's kind of a whole separate thing. But as far as clinicians, yeah, um, I like to sit down with each clinician um, and understand their background. Um, understand how they've had exposure to the special operations community. Um, and uh, I'm really looking at um, their clinical experience, um, licenses, so on and so forth. That's that's really where I keep my focus. And, and I'm also just assessing them as a person. But then, um, like I said, we have multiple interviews. Generally, I pass um, um, them off to uh, a former operator and have them go through um, an interview there. And uh, as I mentioned previously, sometimes there's that third interview and there's definitely been people that uh, as, as a whole, you know, the three of us have sat down and said, uh, we're going to put a pause on this. Um, you know, uh, person's great. They're doing great work, but maybe they're just not exactly um, for, you know, multiple reasons. And so it's, 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 we're trying to keep the bar as high as possible and uh, we're continuing to um, take feedback from interviewees um, as they come in and, and um, make that a, a better process. I mean, nothing's perfect. It's something that we're continually working on. Um, I'm proud to say at this point, uh, I think every single person other than one particular person has a direct connection to the community. And so the, I would argue their soft cultural competency is very, very high, whether it be a spouse, whether it be a former operator, whether it be somebody that uh, was a psych or um, another mental health clinician on post. Um, everybody to date um, has a direct connection. And I think that's just, again, a testimony to this community and some of the people that I've met, they've just continued to share the information and, um, the different clinicians that um, I've got a stack of, of emails right now that I'm trying to line up those interviews, as I mentioned before, that um, as I look at their, their bios and their CVs are just amazing. And so I'm really looking forward to, as we add these different clinicians, some of the things that are, are in the future, there's been clinicians that are coming on board that um, are excited about different things that they want to do as a whole. Um, both for other clinicians, but also for clients. And so I uh, really hoping um, that this becomes just kind of a cornerstone for the community that is a trusted, hey, if you need help, these clinicians really know what they're talking about. And there's some experts in the field, um, in their respective field, in uh, this network of clinicians. Well, I think it's so it's so exciting. And it's, like I said, uh earlier on is, is you're filling a need. And um, I'm just thinking for families that are listening that might be interested in finding um, a counselor within the soft network, have you, have you kind of created a process for that or? Specifically, like if a whole family's coming to counseling, is that? Well, if I'm just thinking think? if someone's listening that, that feels like they need a counselor that, that understands their, their unique experiences would they reach out specifically to a counselor from the website or how, how does that process work? Oh yeah. Great question. Sorry. I misunderstood. You. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The, the, the way we designed it was I, I want to make it as fast as possible. And so um, 
you can go and click on somebody's bio. You can read the, their um, long bio, but at least there's a brief intro on the homepage of all the clinicians and where they're licensed and a little bit about, about their background. And then when you go to, when you click uh, uh, on the deeper bio or their self page, all their contact information for their practice, whether that's an agency, a group practice, a private practice, whatever, it's there. So you don't even have to reach out to soft network. You can reach out directly to the clinician. Um, and from there, you, uh, some of them have also linked their um, websites of, again, their private practice or their, their group practice. And so you can learn way more about them beyond soft network. Um, and so absolutely, you can reach out. If you do want to reach out through soft network, that's completely fine. The, the bulk of what we kind of do on the soft network side is when, whether it be EOD Warrior Foundation, Operation Healing Forces, Seal Future Foundation, what have you, they sometimes reach out and say, um, hey, what kind of clinicians or um, who, who's a specialty in Virginia? Who, who does this type of counseling in Florida? Who does this counseling type of uh, counseling or therapy on the West Coast? And then that's generally where I um, step in and or Stephen will step in and um, hand uh, email, a warm email handoff so that the clinician knows who's coming but also the client uh, or the prospective client or organization is connected with the clinician. But yeah, the way we've designed it, we've tried to make it as, as accessible as possible. That's wonderful. And I, and you did make a good point too with the state lines. So um, I know that that plays a big role also in finding a, a counselor. Yeah. So one of the things that I think is like perfect timing is right now, everybody is subjected to the state licensing laws in that state. And so, and they're different in each state, which makes it complex. There's some states where you can do telehealth in their state as long as you have a license in a certain state. Um, there's some states where you absolutely can't do any unless you have a license in that state. And so it's, it's very state specific. And I think mm-hmm. it's, that's part of the reason this network probably hasn't been created before is because everybody's all over the place. Right. The, the really exciting thing as we're building this is um, so the, the psychologists beat everybody to it and they have what's called the SIPAC. And the SIPAC is a license, um, that's a national. And I think right now it, you just have to apply. And there's actually several psychologists on our site that are in the process of, of getting that license. And then they will be licensed in 35 different states. Wow. Which will be amazing because it, you know, breaks down these barriers to treatment. And then, the counseling compact, I just got an update the other day. I think there's 17 states that have passed it at the state legislation, and they only needed 14 to take it then to be proposed um, in the House of Representatives in D.C. And I think that is in the process of kicking off, and I think they're slated for the spring legislation to actually take it before the floor. could be wrong on that, but I think that's the right timeline. Um, and then anybody that's, uh, it's also called the interstate compact. Anybody that's in, within those 17 states that sign and there's more getting passed, I would argue each week, um, that are joining that. So you're going to have anybody that's a licensed counselor within those states in the next year, potentially licensed in at least 17. I would argue maybe 25, maybe even get to 30 by the end of 2023 and social workers doing the same thing. So. The amazing thing is as this thing's being built, just getting off the ground in the last eight months is we've got hopefully by the end of the the year. So uh, a goal was nine months in, we wanted to have at least 50 vetted clinicians on the site. And I think we're going to get there. Hopefully we will. Wow. And so we'll have that. 
We'll have coast to coast. Hopefully we'll have every state. If not, once those different compacts go into effect, we should within a year have every single state covered with multiple clinicians. Um, obviously a bunch of them will be telehealth. I think for the most part, at least from what I've seen, um, most people are, are pretty well versed in, in telehealth um, therapy at this point. And a lot of clinicians use it because um, it, it enables, it expands their reach. And mm-hmm. again, uh, my experience with this community is it makes it actually work um, because there's so many different variations in schedules. I can't tell you how many times I've had a client in one place and their spouse in another place and we're able to still do it. And it still works and still still be regular, which is just awesome because it's, it's been a barrier to treatment. And again, it's another barrier that's coming down. And for this community that is um, so deserving, I love seeing these barriers just come down, come down, come down. Well, and speaking of barriers, um, we're, you know, we're really uh, focused this year on trying to remove the stigma from um, conversations about mental health and, and reaching out for help when you need it. So, um so yeah, I, I think this is exciting times and I just want to thank you for everything that you're doing and bringing all of these clinicians together and um, providing this great service for our community who absolutely deserves it. And, and so thank you for that, Chris. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I share, it, it has been a complete team effort. And if I can say one more thing, before we go, for those that aren't interested or, or they're just not at that point where they want to schedule and talk to a licensed clinician for the variety of reasons, we have what we call advocates. Um, and they are former operators that have opened up. Again, you can, you can go to our website and see the advocates, see their bios. Um, they've opened up their time and space and said, I, I, if somebody just needs a phone call, if somebody just needs an email, need somebody to talk to from somebody that lived this community and understands some of the stressors and some of the ups and downs. Um, those three gentlemen, um, Steve and Matt, Jose, they've, they've opened the door and put their contact information, which is again, awesome because um, we want to, uh, we recognize not everybody's ready or, or really wants to go to a clinician and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't think everybody has to go to counseling by any stretch. Uh, sometimes you just need a conversation with somebody that you can trust, but that isn't in your situation. And so that's where the advocates have stepped up. And now I can't take credit for any of this. Like I said, Joey, uh, Chris, uh, Steven, one of the advocates, there's been so many people yourself behind the scenes sharing uh, kind of our vision and, and pushing this uh, ball forward, if you will. And so it has been a complete team effort, and it's been so cool to just be front and center and just watch it happen. I love it. I love it. We're all in this together. So, um, well, good things to come. I wish you the best, and I, I um, got my fingers crossed that you're going to get your goal of, of 50 clinicians. I'm sure that you will. Um, so just great things. Um, and so now, I, as is our tradition, uh, we're going to end the podcast with some questions about some of your favorite things. Um, so Chris, what is your favorite music slash song? Oh, that's impossible. <laughs> <laughs> it depends on my mood. Uh, uh-huh. I think, uh, side note, I think, I think a lot of people listen to music because it's an art form and, and it speaks to us. And sometimes I would argue music speaks for us when we don't have the words. Mm. And so, yeah, that's I'm, a great I'm point. 
I'm one of those people that you might uh, you might catch us. Uh, our family's big. We got I got a young family, but we're big on having dance parties in the morning. So sometimes <laughs> we listen to the '80s music. Sometimes it's classical music. Um, uh, sometimes it's uh, just anything and everything. Um, honestly, I love uh, all forms of music, and I could give you maybe a top three of my favorite bands, but I, I don't think that would do it justice. <laughs> Well, I'm curious. What's the top three? Uh, genres. Um, so growing up out West, uh, obviously there, there's a bone of, of country music that I love. Um, I think George Strait, uh, Johnny Cash, um, Garth Brooks to, to be a little bit more of when I was growing up, they were great. Um, uh, maybe a top three in that. Mm-hmm. Um, Metal, uh, Metallica. And if wow. you don't have Metallica in your top two, uh, uh, maybe we'll schedule a session. <laughs> uh, they were a huge part of my, my youth for sure. Um, yeah. And then classical, listen to a good bit of classical, Bach. Um, I'm a big fan of Bach, uh, Chopin. Um, and gosh, again, I think it's uh, genre specific because each genre has just amazing artists. And again, depending on the area you grew up or what you listen to, there's just the depth and breadth of music is, is far and wide. Yes. Yes. Well, that's so fun. And dance parties in the morning sounds fun too. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So the second question is what is your favorite food? Oh, definitely. It's gotta be red meat. So um, (laughs) where we grew up, uh, hunting. Um, there were a lot of farmers and a few Angus farmers, um, black Angus, and they treated us a, a few years to freshly butchered corn fed black Angus steaks. And still this day, I tell my wife, those are some of the best steaks I think I ever had. So yeah, I love steak, but, um, yeah, that nice. would probably be my number one. Nice. Um, and lastly, what is your favorite thing to do in your spare time? Ooh, anything water, uh, honestly, uh, being down in Tampa Bay, um, we love boating. Um, our family boats a lot, um, but we also love water parks. We actually just got back from a water park a couple weeks ago. Um, my kids love that. And then um, uh, swimming, um, yeah, swimming, snorkeling, anything having to do with water. We just, we love the water. <laughs> awesome. Well, Chris, thanks again so much for being with us today and and sharing all this great information about the Soft Network. Thank you so much, Maria. I really appreciate all the help you've been and just the opportunity to come and share what we're doing. You are welcome. Thank you for listening to our Behind the Warrior podcast brought to you by the EOD Warrior Foundation. The EOD Warrior Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization serving the EOD community by providing financial assistance, scholarships, and providing hope and wellness resources for the active duty, reserve, National Guard, retired, and veteran EOD communities and their families. We also honor our fallen and wounded EOD technicians by maintaining the EOD Memorial and Remembrance Garden. We do all this through the generosity of individual and corporate donors and sponsors. If you would like to assist the foundation or support our Behind the Warrior podcast, click the link on our webpage at eodwarriorfoundation.org or contact us at info at eodwarriorfoundation.org. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to tell a friend. The various opinions, beliefs, and viewpoints expressed by guests, contributors, and participants of the Behind the Warrior podcast are their own 
and are intended for informational purposes only. They do not necessarily reflect the opinions, beliefs, viewpoints, or policies of the EOD Warrior Foundation or its employees and volunteers.